Take your Bibles open to the book of Obadiah in the Old Testament. We're almost to the end of the Old Testament in our flyover of the Bible. And tonight it's Obadiah. It's one chapter of the Bible. It's the, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. God's strongest words are, are, are never spoken to broken sinners. They're, his strongest words are spoken against unbroken sinners because God hates pride. He hates pride in people. He hates pride in nations. And no nation can ignore God and escape the judgment of God. And no person can ignore God or live in pride and escape the judgment of God. Obadiah, again, the shortest book in the Old Testament, but a clear and a powerful example of the truth that God hates pride and God judges pride, independence from God. The background of this book is interesting. It really starts in a terrible family feud, the struggle that began in the womb between twin brothers Esau and Jacob, who we usually call Jacob and Esau. It mushrooms into conflict between their descendants, the Edomites and the Israelites. And God will judge Edom for its abuse of Israel. Edom ignores Israel when it should come to his brother's defense and then eventually attacks Israel, and for this will garner the judgment of God. Now, I don't need to tell you that even to this very hour, the Middle East is like a powder keg of tensions. The city of Jerusalem has been subdivided for centuries by groups that are in deadly opposition to one another. And if you go there today, you'll see that all Israeli young people are required to serve a couple of years in the military, male or female. And so it is a kind of a shocking thing to walk the streets of Jerusalem, go, say, into the Muslim quarter, and there is a cluster of Israeli soldiers, men and women, all of whom have M16s slung over their shoulder. It's the tension that's kind of grown out of this kind of thing. Esau lived like a Bedouin in the desert after being alienated from his family. His descendants finally settled in Edom. That was also Esau's Bible name, meaning red. From there, they lived to make life miserable for the Israelites. And even though God loves it when brothers dwell together in unity, and even though he commands a blessing there, and even though he intended for brothers to be born for the day of adversity, the descendants of Esau loved it when the descendants of Jacob, Israel, were judged. And on occasion, they refused to help them, and they even attacked them sometimes, and this aroused the judgment of God. The Bible calls this judgment of God hatred, uses the strongest terms, in the book of Malachi, and it's repeated in Romans chapter 9, it says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Remember, the Edomites are the descendants of one named Esau, or Edom, red. Now, Obadiah's prophecies concerning these two nations are interesting. Edom, or Esau, will be cut off and destroyed forever. Look in Obadiah in verse 10. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame will cover you, and you will be cut off forever. And and Israel, or Jacob, will be restored and blessed. Look at verse 17. But on Mount Zion there will be deliverance and there will be holiness, and the house of Jacob will possess her possessions. Get this contrast in your brain tonight, because it's kind of where we're headed. As you read through the stories of these two men and nations, you can't help but see the powerful sovereignty of God. By the sovereignty of God, what we're talking about is, did you know that God is in control of everything? Of everything. He's in sovereign, absolute, powerful control of everything. Always has been, always will be. The sovereignty of God is a huge theme in the Bible. Now, when I say the sovereignty of God, you might go, okay, well, that just sounds like a theological word, but what does that mean to me? I I recently heard from a woman who had been to a, a, a Christian leader for counsel. The Christian leader explained to her 
how God used all the things in her life, good and bad, to work for good. And that set her free. That delivered her from a dark bondage. What the man described to the woman was simply the sovereignty of God. Listen, get your heart on the idea of the sovereignty of God, and you will never lack for worship. I can give you an example that we won't do it tonight, but if you were to take your Bible, look at Romans chapter 9. You see that Jacob and Esau are referred to in Romans chapter 9. Read Romans chapter 9 and think about the sovereignty of God. It's limitless, his limitless power. Consider the folly of Esau's decision. There's a little New Testament commentary on it in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. I'm in chapter 12, verse 12. Strengthen the hands which hang down, the feeble knees, and make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. And pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And look carefully, lest any one of you fall short of the grace of God, and lest a root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. That is a frightening word about a man. You don't ever want to be in a position like that where you don't honor and respect the things that God offers to you and you disregard God's birthright for you and you come to a place where there's no repentance. This was true of Esau and Esau's descendants suffered as a result of it. And you remember his words in Genesis 25. Jacob said, sell me your birthright this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. What's the birthright to me? He didn't value what God valued. And his descendants didn't love God's people. They were not on the Lord's side. Esau settled in a rugged region in the mountains south of the Dead Sea. I heard the great, we talked about him recently, was an Idumean. It's Greek for Edomite. This contributed to the animosity that he had with the Jews, and he was always warring and battling with them. And tonight, for the sake of our study and our flyover, I just want to kind of blend together the synthesis of the book and application at the same time. You're big folks. I think you can take it. Let me just show you these. I think there are four things, if I recall. The first thing to see is that God judges pride. Notice the judgment of Edom. The vision of Obadiah, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us arise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as an eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. The clefts of the rock, what's that about? Well, the glory of Edom was the city of Petra. It was their capital city, Petra, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Listen, no nation and no person should assume that they're beyond the reach of God. Nobody should assume they're set up too high for God to judge them. No person or nation should believe that pride is a good thing. Pride is not a good thing. It's a sin that God hates. I was discipling a guy named Cliff, and Amy, I have permission to tell you this story, Cliff, when I started to disciple him, wasn't a Christian yet, but he thought he was. 
And so he agreed to a discipleship relationship, and I hope I can encourage a lot of you to get into these fun discipleship relationships. I hope I, if you'd allow me a little sidetrack here, I would like for every single one of you that are here tonight, this year, right away, this week, this month, to pick a prayer partner and begin to pray together about what God would want you to do outside the walls of this building for his kingdom and find a disciple. Would you do it? Would you find a prayer partner? You say, I don't know if I can do it. Can you pray? Could you get with somebody else and bend the knee and say, God, I want to be used of you. You show me how and I'll do it. Put somebody on my path that's easy pickings and I'll pick them. Oh, that's my little side. We'll talk about that some more. That's going to be exciting. That's what we want to be doing. Well, I got involved in this. I know I've committed my life to discipling men. And all of my ministry life, I've always looked for men that wanted to be trained and wanted to have some help. And found this guy. His name was Cliff. And he's a massive guy, huge guy, muscular guy, uh, athlete. He had a basement full of trophies for his athletic endeavors. He wanted his wife to come to all his games and fawn over everything he did. He was a piece of work, I got to tell you. Everybody in town knew it about this guy. It was like, oh, he's got an ego as big as the world. He's so proud, you know. So I began to disciple him. He got saved. His wife got saved. It was just beautiful. I remember their baptism and just a wonderful baptism. Holly, it was the day you were baptized. <sighs> I remember I was driving some Amish people one day, and I was going to meet with Cliff that night. And these Amish ladies were godly women. They knew the Lord. And so we could talk about the things of the Lord. I said, I'm meeting Cliff tonight. Well, we'll pray for him. How can we pray for him? And I told him, I said, pray that God shows Cliff, helps him to understand that pride is not a good thing, but that pride is a bad thing. Cliff was like living on the fuel of pride. You know, it was like, he, he just felt like pride was what you were supposed to have. And, and his athletic endeavors, he had a lot to be, you know, proud of. I said, well, if you want to pray for Cliff, you can pray for him that way. Well, I go to meet with Cliff, and we have our discipleship meeting, and I never forget this is what we always do. I say, well, we got our material we're going to go through, but Cliff, is there anything, do you have, like, any questions, or is there anything on your heart that you'd like to talk about first? And you know what he said to me? He said, Pastor, I've been reading the Proverbs, and I saw something that just shocked me the other day. He says, is it true that pride is bad? I'm like, yeah, it is. Where did you see that? He goes, right here, and right here, and right here, and right here. I'm like, well. Yeah, it's bad. He goes, I never knew that. I never knew that. And he began to humble himself. The guys that play basketball with him today, a pastor friend of mine said, Cliff humbled himself. It's a beautiful thing when people humble themselves. But if you think that you're out of reach of God's judgment, no matter how high your city is built or how remote it is or how much money you have or what you think you have going for you, how smart you are, my goodness, think about it. You ever been sick? You ever had a kidney stone? You ever had a heart stop? Any you know, you ever lose your job? Yeah, seriously. Am I making you excited tonight? Am I thrilling you with these things? Now, God judges pride. Another thing to notice is when God judges, he does it thoroughly. <laughs> God judges thoroughly. Understand this. Look at verses uh, 5 through 9. We'll just read them together. He, he's going to say to them, if it was just a, guy, a man that came upon you, it, he might not do a thorough job. I'm going to do a thorough job. So here's what he says. If thieves were to come to you and robbers by night, oh, how you might be cut off. Would they not have stolen until they had enough? And grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be searched out. How his hidden treasures will be sought after. All men in your confederacy shall force you to the border and the men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. And those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you and no one is aware of it. 
This is a stern warning. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men of Otaman, one of the cities of Edom, shall be dismayed. And the end of that, everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. When God judges, he judges thoroughly. You don't want to be on the bad side of God's judgment. Men might do things incompletely. He will do things thoroughly, and this will include a removal. When God judges a nation, it's interesting to me to notice, and this is the only place in prophetic literature it says this. When God judges a nation, you know one of the things he does is there's this distortion. He allows people's sin to distort male and female roles and sexual roles and that, and then he allows the wise men to be taken out of a culture. It's like you don't have men of skill and understanding and wisdom. It's one of the things God does. I got to tell you, you can just take this or leave this, but you know, as we watch this kind of wrangling for who's going to be the president of the United States of America, don't you just kind of say, Could we see a godly statesman who loves God and loves his word and fears God? Where are the men like that? Is that not evidence of the judgment of God on our nation that men of wisdom and godly character are so rare and hard to find? When God judges, he does it thoroughly. The third thing to notice here is that God's judgment often takes this form that he allows our own sin to kind of turn on us. He turns our, uh, it, we're, we're turned over to ourselves, and then we don't like what happened. In other words, what we do happens to us. This is exactly what happens here if you pick up the reading in verse 10. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you'll be cut off forever in the day that you stood on the other side, and the day that strangers carried captive his forces. And by the way, can I just say this? You may say, I'm not against the Lord. Yes, you are. If you're not for the Lord, you're against the Lord. You may be here tonight. And i got to tell you, I don't pick on young people. I love young people. They're on my heart all the time. And as I studied, and I kind of got away this week for a while, and I spent some time just in this word, in this word, in this word, in this word. It just a, The thing that just kept coming to my heart was, young people, young people, are you on the Lord's side? Young people, I mean, it's true for everybody, but young people, are you on the Lord's side? I know you're going to say, well, I'm going to stand back for a while. I'm not going to get weird over here, you know, and I'm not going to go against God. But I'm not gonna, I see a lot of young people that are not for the Lord, they're not against him. So what the truth of the matter is, he is going to judge people who are not actively for him. Who is on the Lord's side? Here it goes on, and it says, but you... You should have not gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. You should have not, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered in the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity or laid hands on their substance in the day of their... It's like you looted when they were taken over by their enemies and I was judging them. You liked it. That wasn't good and that you looted. That's not good. I'm going to hold you accountable for that. Cut off of them who escaped in verse 14 and should have delivered up these upon among whom remained in the day of distress. God judges pride and he will do it immediately or eventually, but he will always judge pride and he judges very thoroughly in his time. And the judgment is often 
what we did coming back on us. And you see this now very clearly in verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank in my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and it will be as though they had never been. These nations, you and these nations, are going to get wiped out like they weren't even there. And prophetically, that is exactly what has happened. Because God's word is true and he keeps his promises, which is the final point. God's judges pride, he judges thoroughly, and sometimes the judgment is just, you, you, you want to do what you want to do, you're independent from God? Okay, let me, see how, let, let me show you what it looks like when I just take my hands off you, and you don't have me, and you don't have my blessing, and you don't have my protection, you don't have my favor, you don't have my presence, you don't have my love, that's going to turn very, very ugly. You don't want to try to live this life without God. You don't want to be lifted up in pride and independence and try to live your life. That judgment will come on you as judgment will come certainly on any nation that lifts itself up in pride like that thinks that it can live without God. But he keeps his promises, and you see this in verse 17 and following. And what he says in verse 17 is, but on Mount Zion there will be deliverance. And again, the prophets usually do this. Almost all the messages of the prophets, they deliver this prophetic word, which is like pretty hard-nosed. And then it comes around and says, but here, and then you usually have a prophetic reference that has to do with the future of God's people, Israel, and the future of all of God's people, and the ultimate future in the kingdom, folks. We're talking about things that are yet future. We're talking about not future just to them, but future to us. There's going to be a kingdom on earth that is Jewish in nature, and Jesus himself will be here to rule. We believe that promise is a promise he's going to keep. So what's happening in the Middle East today is very interesting, isn't it? It's very provocative just to watch what's happening in the Middle East among the peoples of the world. And you see the kind of, mel- the kind of stew that's going on over there. It's like nothing there. It all fits perfectly with this ancient book that we hold in our laps every Sunday morning, every Sunday night when we teach. No shocks. It's just like, that's interesting. God keeps his promises. He intends to eternally deliver and eternally establish his people. And he goes through the geography of the Middle East, and he basically says from the north and the south and the east and the west, I'm going to call them all back wherever they are, and they will be established like fire on my holy mountain in Jerusalem. And this will be forever. This is my kingdom forever. And there's this glowing promise that doesn't include Edom. He's saying, I'm going to wipe you out, and I'm going to establish them. It's black and white. It's cut and dried. You can... Count on the promises of God, good and bad. The Bible says uh, those who bless his people that he will bless, and those who curse his people he will curse. In Genesis chapter 12, American heads of state should keep that in mind as they make decisions. As thoroughly as God judges, though, he keeps his word. This week I visited a man named Bill. Remember me telling you about Bill? He had a precious opportunity to lead this guy to the Lord. He was just so ready. I told him I'd come back and see him, and you know, Chuck and I went over and we visited him this week. There he is on his deathbed. His family's all gathered in and he's just like skin and bones and he's gasping for breath. He's dying, man. I led him to the Lord and I kind of wondered, will he remember what I talked to him about? Is he still clinging to the Lord, his only assurance for salvation? Did he really get it, you know? I think he did. He's so grateful that I was there. Thank you for coming to see me. I said, I thought maybe I would read a passage of Scripture to you. Would you? Oh, I'd like that. I'd like that. So this is what I read him. Let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Bill loved that. Why? Because the promises of God, you can take them to your deathbed. You can count on the promises of God when all the other noise that you've heard in your life doesn't mean anything at all and you lie in your deathbed ready to face God. The one thing you will want to cling to is the promises of God. So whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side? Is this nation on the Lord's side? Is God on our side? Are you on the Lord's side? Good question, don't you think? Verse 21, very final verse, ends with this phrase, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And I studied this, I just kept thinking, why would anyone ever want to find himself not on the Lord's side? And God intends for every believer to, to establish an eternal kingdom that involves every believer. Consider that question. Is America on the Lord's side? And what would happen if you take this book and you take the word Edom out and you put America in there? God could say everything to America that he said to Edom and he could not be charged with unfaithfulness if he did that. This is scary business. And are, but are you on the Lord's side? Are you on the side of God's people? Think of that. Do you identify with God's people? Do you love the cause of Christ? Or are you half-hearted and say you're a follower of Christ? Because those who are on the Lord's side will inherit his promises, the promises of God, and be established forever. And those who will not will face the judgment of God. So may God deliver you from that. Let's close tonight by singing number 624. 624 in your hymn book. Sing with all of your heart. 624, who is on the Lord's side? Let's stand together and sing.